Will you join me in prayer? As we take this posture of prayer, would you truly join me in prayer? The words that I'm praying, would you make them your own? Father, please, would you speak to us through your word today? We're here to behold you, Jesus. We're here to see you. We wanna hear from you. We wanna linger in a space for just a moment and ask you, what would you say to us, your servants? What would you say to us, your sons and daughters? What would you say to us, to those you are inviting into relationship with you? As your word says, every single word of your word proves true that all scripture is profitable, would you make it profitable in this moment, Holy Spirit? Would you make it profitable for our teaching and correction and reproving and rebuking to make us complete in all manner of righteousness? Would you help us, Jesus, to see you clearly, to obey you, to love you, to have our hearts transformed by the work of your word? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, amen. It was a cold uh, day in Alaska for me about 13 years ago. I was 21 years old sitting in my Dodge Dakota pickup, white, not all-wheel drive, which was very foolish in Alaska. (laughs) And as I sat there in that moment, I came to a place where I breached relational trust, where I was actually honest for the first time in my life that I did not nor want to follow God. Although I grew up in church, a family who instilled a relationship with God, a following of God is important. It was in that moment, in that snowy, really frigid moment, that I said, God, I am done with you. I don't want to follow you. (laughs) Everything that's happened in my life, you haven't helped You've been silent, you've been missing. I have wound upon wound and there's nothing you've done. So why would I follow you? That moment marked for me what would, as we've learned in weeks past in this origin series, a death roll. Years would go, two years to be exact, where I would follow the passions of my heart and my flesh and spiral to a, to a place that I never thought I would go, which is what sin does. But the good news of the origin of a covenant, which is what we're talking about today, speaking very very plainly and very truthfully about what covenant means, that God is eagerly pursuing relational commitment. That's what a covenant is, relational commitment. That he didn't let me go. That he didn't leave me in that death roll or death spiral. But he came after me. And today in this passage, as we've been talking about uh, in passages past here in Genesis 1 through 11, we're trying to understand the origins of the world around us. Last week, we talked about the origins of judgment. This week, we're talking about the origins of that relational commitment. Your story may not sound like mine. There might be nuance. But at the end of the day, all of us will breach relational trust. You probably have it in the wake of your story, in the path behind, with people you've loved most that you thought you would never breach in that way, 
Maybe even today you may have uttered words like I uttered in that really frigid cold day, God, I'm done. But the good news and what I want you to hear from Genesis 8, 20 through chapter 9, verse 17 is that our God eagerly pursues relational commitment with you. Eagerly pursues you and loves you and wants to be in relational commitment with you. As we explore this, as we think about this, as we see this come alive in the text, I believe we're going to have three observations to help us understand how he goes about doing this. Three observations on how he goes about pursuing eagerly relational commitment to you. Because you see, a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God is about the relational commitment of his glory in his people and through his people. And if you are in Christ today, that's you. And if Christ is beckoning you to him today, that's you, that he eagerly desires to be with you, that he eagerly desires to commit himself to you no matter the cost, no matter what you've done, no matter what you will do or what you could never dream of doing. So the first observation, and then we'll tease out what, that, what the implication of that is for us in our souls today. The first observation is this. He recreates the decreation of our story. He recreates the decreation of our story. This is how he pursues eagerly relational commitment to you. Look back here with me in verses 22 in chapter 8. Look here with me. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Let's keep going. Chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. Verse 7 of chapter 9. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. He recreates the decreation of of your story. We are at the tail end here. We're at the, the heels of the flood, where God, as he looked out in humanity and what has happened, the death roll of our sin, the origin of the depravity of man, and what all had happened to his very good creation, he decides in sorrow and grief to judge, to cause the waters from the heavens and the earth to fill, to decreate. This is the consequence of sin, the decreation. And Noah, as he gets out of the ark with his family and with every living creature that that was with him, as he steps out, God hearkens back to Genesis 1. Did you see it here? Sit in this reality. He's As he steps out of the ark, he's looking out. Everything has been decreated except for what God has given to him in that moment in the ark. The seeds that are left, the animals that are left, his family, the humans that are left. The decreation of the flood, the consequence of sin, which is decreation. The lessening of God's good creation. God hearkens back to Genesis. The language here, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day, night. The earth remains. 
He goes on and he talks about be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth in verse one. Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth. Verse seven, he talks about how everything has been given into their hands. God in this moment is recreating. Now I don't mean like creating new, but what I mean is he's reestablishing what was lost in the garden in Genesis three and what was decreated in Genesis six through seven, God is recreating it. He's reestablishing his creation mandate. He's saying, humans, now that you've got a fresh start, go about the good work that I've given you. This is how God begins to eagerly pursue relational commitment with Noah and his sons and with us. God reestablishes so much of what, what seemingly was lost. So the question that's posed in my mind, and I hope is posed in yours as we're reading this, could it be, could it be that God, through, in, and after, we experience decreation? We experience the consequence of sin, which we've all experienced. You've all experienced the consequences of sin and brokenness. Could it be that in that place and through that moment and after those experiences of the sin of decreation, that he begins a work of recreation. Could it be that God is about the business of restoring what was lost? Could it be that he's not just a God of judgment, but he's a God of restoration? Could it be that in the moments where it feels like we are most lost and it's most hurting and it's most painful, that he wants to, in those places, restore? In those places, bring about relational commitment to us. For me, this has been a hard truth to swallow. This has been hard for me as I've experienced different levels of abuse in my life. I've experienced all sorts of different levels of abuse, physical, emotional, verbal, sexual. God has tried to press down into my heart and soul to know like, Tyler, could it be that I am working in those moments Could it be that in them, through them, after them, when the consequence of sin is too much to bear, that in that place, could I start again? Could I recreate? Could I restore what was lost? Here's the implication for our soul, if this observation is true, that he eagerly pursues relational commitment with you by recreating the decreative moments of our life. The implication is this, the most painful moments of your story, God wants to use. The most painful moments of your story, God wants to recreate. The most painful moments of your story, God wants to restore. He doesn't want to leave you there wondering why and what if, how come me? But he wants to hearken back while the earth remains. Here's all of my provision Here's all of the hope. Here's all the restoration that I'm giving to you. That consequence of sin is not going to be the end of you. It doesn't have to be. If he wants to do this, I think we have to ask ourselves some seriously tough, hard heart questions, soul level questions. Are you willing to stare at the consequence of your sin? Are you willing to actually slow down pause and look at how your sin affects you and everyone around you? Are you willing for just a moment to slow down and recognize, ah, I am not the hero of my story. 
that this universe and creation is not centered around me. And in fact, if it were, we would end up in the flood. Are you willing to stare at the consequence of others' sins against you? Are you willing to hear how God wants to speak restoration into your story? Are you willing to partner with God as Noah and his sons are being invited into partnership with God in that, in that recreation moment? Are you willing to partner and experience the sorrows of that de- decreation? To actually experience the tragedy of sin and judgment? Are you actually willing to believe that through those, he will speak a restorative word over your life. Friends, if you can believe that or are willing to posture yourself and ask those types of questions, I believe you will start to see recreation in your life. What felt like the consequence of sin, the ramifications of sin, the decreation of sin, what felt like your story was just tearing down at different places where you've tried to hide it away and not look at it and not talk about it or not think about it, that he actually might want to, in that space, be with you and heal you and restore you and reestablish what was lost and what was once good. Our first observation of how he eagerly pursues relational commitment is through his recreation of our decreation. Our second observation is this, your lack of safety, your lack of safety leads to exposure, which leads to real relational intimacy. Your lack of safety, it will lead you to exposure and it will lead you to real relational intimacy with a real relationally committed God. Look here back with me, chapter eight, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Jump with me to chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Okay, so what's happening here? First, did you catch it here? This small word in verse 20, then Noah built an altar. So what was happening in the verses preceding, he steps out of the ark with his family. He steps out of the ark with the living creatures that God has given into that ark in that moment to preserve his creation. They step out. Can you imagine the scene? What you used to hear, birds chirping, trees blowing in the wind. You've been on this ark for months and months and months and have gotten used to those sounds or the sounds of storm outside and he sits and there's an eerie silence. There's a lack of safety in the eerie silence, is there not? Then, even beyond that, did you catch it? He took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. I don't know about you, but this feels really crazy. There's no other birds or animals except for what he has on the ark. He took some of every clean animal, every clean bird. He's taking his food. (laughs) He's taking his source of life. He's taking what feels probably pretty scarce and sparse, 
And what does he do? He worships. He puts it before the living God and he says, God, thank you for seeing me through this. He worships wholeheartedly, fully, completely, at risk to himself, at risk to his family, at risk to the potential recreative work that God is trying to do. He does it. And did you catch what the Lord says? The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. And he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is saying, hey, Noah, sons, I know that the intention of your heart, they're exposed in this moment, is evil from your youth, but I will not do what I just did again in the same way. So what we're seeing here is your lack of safety, it leads to exposure. Verses five and six in chapter nine, there's a safeguard here. There's murder still lurking in the hearts of those who are left. Like God's saying, hey, if anyone sheds blood, like there's a reckoning. Why would he say that unless there's risk of shedding blood? Like sin is still here and present in the system. But what God is saying is, what we're seeing with Noah is he comes into this place, he makes a burnt offering on this altar at great risk to himself. He is lacking safety in this moment. He's exposed through that. Every intention of his heart is evil. There's a safeguard needed, but the Lord smells this pleasing aroma and speaks. There it is, real relational intimacy with a really relationally committed God. Could it be that God, in spite of every intention of humanity's heart, every intention will pursue you and love you? Could it be possible? Our hearts yearn for safety. Let's admit that. Our hearts yearn for it. If you've grown up in the West, your entire thought life and functioning formational system is all about your comfort and safety. That's why you moved to the burbs, right? Everything about everything of who we are is, is centered on are you safe? Are you comfortable? So much so that we've designed relational interaction on this building off of safety, that we must feel safe to trust. But here's the deal. This might sound like a silly example. Think about the illusion of safety. Why is there a lock on screen doors? Have you ever thought of that? You've seen a screen door? There's locks on them. What's the purpose of a screen door? You open the door, you let the outdoor wind in, the smells, the sounds, but then you lock it as if I couldn't come and just push my way through. And that's a telling little observation, right? That safety is elusive. Safety is an illusion. Because safety, in the way our hearts try to manufacture it, is not on the one who actually makes us safe. It's on ourself. It's on what we can do and what we can't do. If you've heard me up here before, you know that I'm a fan of Narnia, and I can't help myself. I'm going to put a Narnia quote in. Susan and Beaver are talking about Aslan as he's trying to explain who Aslan is, what he is. He says this, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. For those of you who've never read Narnia or not exposed to it, Aslan is C.S. Lewis's portrayal of God. He's trying to write an allegory of God, of who he is, his characteristics, his very being. And so he's saying, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. 
is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. What does it mean that God is good? Because I think this is at its root where real relational intimacy comes, that when we actually can let go of this elusive desire of safety and actually be exposed and actually in that exposure meet the goodness of God that we will experience real relational intimacy with him, that in that place we will get to see that he is really relationally committed to you and to me. So what is this goodness It could be said this way, as a divine attribute, goodness is first a description of God's essential character. Did you hear that? Goodness is the center, the bullseye of who God is. It's his essential essence of who he is. It means that the Lord is not evil, that he does not love sin, and indeed cannot even be tempted with it. Is he safe? No, but he is good. He is good. And if you and I could actually throw off the shackles of safety for a moment and actually come exposed in front of this good God, we may actually experience real, true relational intimacy with him. Where we can actually look at the decreative struggle of our story and see how he's recreating it and restoring it. So the implication for our soul in that is simply this. Relational intimacy flows from trust that's rooted in God's goodness not his safety. He's not dangerous in the sense of which we might think of wicked, dangerous, evil. He's good. He's good. This is an important reality for us because would you rather trust a safe God or would you rather trust a good God? I think we're talking about two different ones. Our second observation of how he eagerly pursues relational commitment is through an invitation to a lack of safety that leads to exposure, which which leads us to real intimacy. How he continues this pursuit of eager relational commitment. The third observation is this. You can rest. You can rest. This good God will hold the line of relational commitment forever. You can rest, friends, because this good God will hold the line of relational commitment forever. Did you see it in verses uh, 8 through 17 in chapter 9? Three times over, he says, I establish my covenant, verse 9. I establish my covenant, verse 11. I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth, verse 17. Covenant, again, we're just trying to define it in the sense of its relational commitment to his glory through his people, through you and through me in Christ. Covenant is relational commitment. It's God committing to us, partnering with us to bring about his work in the world. And three times over, he is saying, I establish it. I establish it. I have established it. Not only does he establish it, he sets the sign for remembering it. Did you see it here in verses 12 through 15? This is where we get this imagery of the bow. This is where in our children's books, we see the rainbow pop out every time we get to Noah's ark and the flood. We see this reality, this bow. I have set the bow in the cloud so that I will remember my covenant. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember. 
And then in verse 16, did you see it? This commitment is not just for a short while. This commitment is not for when you are really good or when Noah and his sons are really good. It is forever. It is everlasting. It will not cease. It will not stop. Because God is the one who established it. And God is the one who's remembering it. And God is the one who's keeping it. I find it incredibly interesting. Did you see this? Where is the bow? Verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud. The source of judgment and decreation for Noah and his sons and all creation was rain. Can you imagine if you're Noah and his sons, or animals for that matter, and you're out there and a storm pops up, you're like, oh no. (laughs) Where'd that boat go? Why did we break it down? (laughs) What do we do in this moment? But God, as he's saying, I have established this commitment with you. I'm the one who's actually going to do this. He sets his remembrance in the source of decreation. He sets his remembrance in the source that brought about the consequence of sin. Could it be that how he is so committed to you and I relationally, that it's in those dark clouds of your life that he sets the reminder that it's not actually around it. It's not even necessarily through it. It's in it. In the dark cloud. Whenever it rhymes, oh, that feels like that all over again. Could it be in that moment that he's eagerly pursuing you and holding that line of commitment? Because it rhymes, you're like, I'm about to jump ship. <laughs> I'm about to leave. I'm Tyler back in the, in the Dakota, in Alaska. I'm done but he sets it right in the darkness, right in the place that it feels least comfortable and least efficient and least productive. So for us, what this means, all of us who are weary, all of us who are weary, we can rest. We can cease. We don't have to white knuckle this anymore. (laughs) We don't have to white knuckle our relationship with God and manage it and think and say, if only I would read my Bible more and pray more, then God would be pleased with me. We can stop holding on so tightly because we're not the ones holding the line to our relational commitment with God. He is. And he's the one who's remembering it, not us. As I say this, I think this is hitting two groups very differently. The first group. I think that sometimes you may think that if you do just the right amount of things, God will be pleased with you. Can I tell you that that is a dead end? You can never do just the right amount of things. We're not going there. We're going there next week. But Noah and his sons don't do the right amount of things very quickly after this. There is no amount of good that you can do to hold this relational line with God. But he is good and he will hold it. For the other group, I think there's some of you here who don't actually think you need his grace. Now, you may not say that outright, but your life, if we were to look in it, if, you, if it were displayed on a projector, I think it would prove true that you don't think you need his grace. That the motivations of your heart, I don't, I don't think I need that. And so, You white-knuckle it. 
I'm not going to look at the decreation. I'm not going to look at the pain. I'm not going to look at the sorrow. I'm not going there. I'm not going to be unsafe. I'm not going to be exposed. I'm going to keep this going. I'm even going to say the right things and learn how to say everything around it because I've gotten really good at some Christian subculture language. But you will never rest. And I fear you will end your life without really tasting and seeing on this side relational commitment from a relational God. There's good news here, friends. There's good news because of Christ. Can you feel it? Can you feel how low we are brought? Can you feel how it just our ability to hold on to God in a committed relationship is nothing? Can you feel it? Can you feel it drain out that I don't know that I can hold up that end of the bargain? And this is where the good news is. You can't. Adam couldn't. Noah couldn't. Moses couldn't. Abraham couldn't. King David couldn't. No one could except for Jesus Christ. That's why I love Hebrews 12 too when it says Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who establishes the new covenant with you and me. He is the one who finishes it through on the end, patiently and joyfully enduring on the cross. That in that moment as he's pierced, as he's crushed, as he's got a crown of thorns pressed so far in his brow that blood is dripping down his face, that that pleasing aroma of that sacrifice reached up to the heavens and God said, I'm pleased. I'm pleased because I'm so relationally committed to my people. I've made a way. Jesus has made a way, so much so that on the third day he rose again, proving that he actually has conquered the sin, shame, death, and Satan, our enemies. The death roll, how we get caught up in it, that he's actually defeated it. And he's sitting on the right hand of the Father now, as 2 Peter says, we will be divine partakers of Friends, he is so relationally committed to you that he is not going to leave you here treading water vigorously, trying to figure out how to stay committed to him. He's so committed to you to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, will you stand in awe of this grace? That's the application for your life. Stand in awe and wonder of the grace of God. That in spite of you and me, in spite of our fallen realities, in spite of our sin, in spite of our stubbornness, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of everything that's been done in the dark clouds, he has put a reminder there and that bow set in the clouds is his son at the right hand of the father. Jesus interceding on behalf of you and me. Let's worship this Jesus. Let's love this Jesus. Let's follow this Jesus because he's relationally committed to you all the way through forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you that you are good. And we know that you're good because we, we see your son on the cross. We see his life and his death and his resurrection. We see the invitation to come and rest we can cease and stop trying. We can just stand in awe of grace. That in spite of 
the exposure points in spite of the moments where sin and rebellion are still lingering and will not let go, it feels like. That Jesus, in those moments, you have defeated them on the cross and in your resurrection. For my friends in this room who have not yet placed their whole life trust in you, Jesus, I pray that they would smell the pleasing aroma of your sacrifice, Jesus. And that it would not be the aroma of death, but it would be the sweet fragrance of life. To my friends in the room who have been following Jesus for months and years and decades, would we remember that he remembers? That we don't have to remember all the time that he is so relationally committed. God, you are so relationally committed to us that you have set signs, reminders, remembrances, not because you're gonna forget, but because you are good. Thank you for saving us, for freeing us, for redeeming us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen.